How y'all doing out there? I'm Damian Lane, and I'm on the chopping block at visceralchange.org. Listen to what we do. I don't have anything to say. No, wait, wait. I'm nervous. Yeah. It's an easy listening station. Yeah, right now. <laughs> Why? You're listening to the chopping block. You're listening to the chopping block. You're listening to the chopping block. The chopping block. On the Visceral Change podcast. How's everybody doing? We're back. New episode of the chopping block. I'm here with my brother, my family, you know, mentor, friend, uh, one of the men in my wedding, one of the groomsmen, Damien. Tyler Lane. D-Lane, what's going on, man? Yes, sir. I'm doing well, man. Uh, you know, trying to gear up for the fall, whatever it's going to look like. Yeah, man, out there in uh, institutions of higher education, it's been super interesting seeing how they've developed, man, uh, during COVID. Have y'all seen some serious struggles or nothing crazy? So Connecticut's actually been pretty good. Um, you know, I'm at Quinnipiac University, um, and we're in Connecticut right here, um, not too far from Yale. Right. Yale, right in New Haven, uh, Quinnipiac's in Hamden. A town next next door and um you know between all the issues that new york had and and, and you're from new england so you know you, you can drive through five states in one day it's not <laughs> like arizona or texas right where you're in one state driving for 20 hours um you know so between new york and all the issues that they've had where everyone lives on top of each other i'm i'm a new york native so i know how that is right um there's literally nothing you can do wherever you go. There's droves and droves of people. Um, Connecticut, you have a little bit more space, a little bit more spaced out. So we haven't had too many issues up here. Um, obviously, you know, we're dealing with it just like everybody else is with people, people trying to get tested and um, the state trying to figure out what that means to reopen back in phases. Right. And right now we're in phase three. And then on the other side of us, you have Massachusetts, right? Who's dealing with some of the same, but, but, you know, the city of Boston and the city of New York, I've lived in both mm. for equal amounts of time, uh, almost at least 11 years in Boston and 14 years in New York. And um, Boston, you, you, you do have a little bit more breathing room, right? You just don't have the, the, the massive amounts of people right. that you would in New York. Um, still, still a large city, obviously, but um, and, a, and a large met- metropolitan area, but you just don't have the... Um, where everybody's on top of each other in New York. So New York had their own set of issues. Boston had their own set of issues and Connecticut somehow stayed out of the fray. Which is interesting. (laughs) I see it's like, it's the gray sort of blot on the map, at least pretty consistently in terms of COVID. Yeah, man, that's, that's interesting, man. Well, I know I am, I know the people are looking forward to hearing a little bit more about you and what you do. You know, I know you, man. I know you well, you know me well, you know, and, I can probably, I can comfortably say, at least from my perspective, that your trajectory has been unlike anything I've seen in terms of higher ed professionals. You, you've gone from operations to res life as an assistant director to a director of res ed, residential education at a massive research one institution, you know, to now multicultural engagement. I mean, tell me about that journey uh, and what you've learned to be some of the similarities and the differences that sort of got you to where you are. Well, that sort of manifest. Yeah, for sure. Um, so my journey, as you said, hasn't been the typical um, journey for anyone that deals specifically with equity and inclusion mm-hmm. or multiculturalism or anything like that. Um, but I was planting seeds along the way, right? And I had to do that with my extra time. I had to do that sort of on, on, on my own personal journey just because of the identities that I hold, right? Um, so yeah, as you said, man, 
uh, I, I kind of cut my teeth and got my chops through um, residence life. Mm-hmm. You know, I started out in the operations side where I, I found myself at Boston College building this graduate housing program where it was the first of its kind. It was all off campus. BC had never done this before, um, but it allowed me the opportunity to um, to build sort of the co-curricular programs as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was, it, was, it was an interesting experience. You know, you had all the operations pieces where you're managing this real estate portfolio off campus. Um, so, you know, I'm cutting my teeth in business, but I'm also cutting my teeth in the business of managing people, mm-hmm. right? And that's how I look at sort of student affairs or residence life. I always looked at it as the business of managing people. Um, and, 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 and we know, you know, in, when we talk about multiplicity or multiculturalism, we always talk about, or diversity, whatever you want to call it, right? Um, you always talk about different identities and how they meld together. Uh, and that was something that I had to do, right? So that was a constant string. Then I went to uh, Salem State, which is a much smaller, Mm-hmm. mid-sized, mid-sized public institution. Uh, and I did that purposefully, right? And I'll, I'll mention purpose a couple times. I did that purposefully because what I found at Boston College was um, this certain string of socioeconomic power um, that, 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 that kept rearing its ugly head. And I, and, and I actually found it getting in the way of student development in certain ways. So with my background, you know, raised by a single mother, uh, in New York City, um, one of seven children, you know, um, I, I purposefully wanted to work with a different demographic of student where folks were coming from tougher socioeconomic backgrounds. And you found some of those students at Boston College, but, you know, the, 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 the typical student, if, if you had a cookie cutter student that went to Boston College, it was, you know, came from an affluent background, small town, what have you, or, 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 or a large city, but, but very affluent family. That's right. Um, you, which at Salem State, and we both did our grad work there, I think you know, um, you know, you come across non-traditional students all the time. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to work with a, a little bit of, not, of, an, of a non-traditional student. And I was still in operations at that point, you know, but with the, with the uh, information that I was able to grab at BC and the experience that I was able to grab, not only with, with, with operations, but uh, technologically, right? Yes. Um, which, and, 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 and I always talk about equity and access and there's no greater way to do that than through technology. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was able to build Boston College's first online housing program. And then I was able to build Salem State's first online uh, housing program, right? Um, with working with a third-party company that had the software, but I would bring it in, you know, tailor it to the needs of the university. Um, so another interesting experience, but I was also creating equity and access for students. Now, all the way, I talked about planting seeds. So at Boston College, I'm doing work with the multicultural office, working with their May's mentoring program. Um, where we would take a student from their freshman year all the way through their senior year, right? And we would, we would, we would pair them up with uh, faculty and staff mentors, and um, we, would, we would pretty much uh, handhold these students throughout their entire transition uh, of, of, of the four or five years, however long it took them to finish uh, mm-hmm. undergrad. So transferable skills um, that I've taken throughout my journey, right? 
Um, you know, being on the operations side, a lot of people forget that universities, uh, colleges and universities, it's a big business as well, right? So I talked about a little bit about the business of managing people. Mm -hmm. And um, that's where the operations piece comes in. So my, so my ability to sort of understand bottom lines, to understand budgets, to understand, you know, the numbers behind resources and where they go. Um, and most people talk about equity and inclusion on campus as an unfunded mandate. So we're in the process of building a wellness center, but within that space, you can't build a wellness center with a university that's named Quinnipiac University without thinking about uh, a land acknowledgement statement, right, for the Quinnipiac people um, and the land that the college is built on. So, so, so I find myself sort of merging all of these different experiences with, with, with the understanding of, of, of how a college works um, or how a university works uh, from, you know, the budget aspect, the people aspect, uh, the physical aspects as well, um, and just trying to merge all of those together to make the biggest impact in students' lives and, you know, to try to help along the ways in which faculty and staff interact, engage, and try to lead students. For sure, man. Yeah. And you offered a, you offered a ton there, man. But one thing that always sticks with me, just from knowing you in the past and to present, is, you know, you've always referred to student affairs as the business of managing people, man. I use that as well. Uh, that's always stuck with me because uh, that's really what it is. And, you know, I remember when I was flirting between dissertation topics, one thing I was thinking about was this idea of it's good until it works uh, with respect to diversity and inclusion, whether it's a chief diversity officer position or just to speak to the, the roles and the expectations of that role in general. I mean, people love it until it's actually working. And then it's like, wait a minute, I'm not quite sure we can invest in this. Uh, so you mentioned, you mentioned Boston College. Uh, I'm not quite sure what those demographics are, um, but I wanna talk a little bit about demographics of blackness though on some other institutions and, and locations. I mean, so we know Oneonta, sort of 4.6% black. Salem Mass, about 5.2% black. Tucson, 5% black. Um, I'm sure Boston College isn't much greater than that. Uh, so you touched a little bit about this, but talk about how your experience in these predominantly white institutions and settings has prepared you for your role now as director at, where Quinnipiac's black population is only 4.12%. Yeah. And, and, and I think this is, this is the, the crux that every black person in student affairs has to uh, ha has to manage at some point, right? Or the cross that, that, that I think we have to bear uh, without getting too religious. Um, you know, we're thinking about our own experiences and, 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 and what happened to us on campus or how we decided to go to college or if we come from a first generation family or what have you, right? Um, we take that and we internalize it. Um, and then we either, we either love our experience or we're somewhere in the middle or we despise it. But we always want to change it in some, in some capacity for, for students that might be in our shoes. Yes. So I think that's what drives me, right? You know, I've seen these students at Boston College. Um, and if you talk about scale, right, if you look at a small private or if you look at a large private, right, um, if you talk about scale, it all scales up, right? Yeah. It's, uh, 
you know, you, you would find the same issues on campus in terms of, of diversity, in terms of mismanagement of, um, of issues uh, once things happen nat uh, nationally, right? Uh, from, from, and I'm talking about from senior leadership to where they either decide to speak out. And a lot of presidents are, are symbolic leaders, right? Like you, you become pretty much the, the, the mayor of a small town almost. Um, you know, so the mismanagement of different issues is the same, just the scale is different. It, it, it's literally just, a, in my experience, it's literally just a matter of if you're in the paper or not. Right. Um, how, how leadership sometimes pushes folks from, from marginalized backgrounds towards marginalized issues uh, on campus. I think that's the same, right? So if you keep seeing these, these the same issues and it doesn't matter, um, it doesn't matter what sector you're in, right? If you're in large, large private, uh, uh, large public research one, and the demographics are really what's driving this, right? And we all know about the browning of America, mm -hmm. which, is, which is this impending rolling of numbers to where the dominant group won't be the dominant group for much longer, sure. right? In America or in higher education. So, you know, I found myself in places where I'm trying to make sure universities are better prepared for this um, to manage student experience, right? If I can change, and, and I had to scale it down for myself in terms of expectations of how much I can change on campus, right. um, which, which was something, I think, which was something that was interesting for my career, almost, it was almost like this awakening right. to where I'm like, I always saw myself when I'm getting promotions, right? I'm like, okay, now I'm an assistant director. I'll be able to manage this, this, and this policy. Okay, now, uh, well, I skipped the associate director piece. Now I'm a director. Um, I'll be able to affect all of these policies and I get to manage a staff of, of, of 30 uh, with 600 students and I'll be able to directly affect what policies are in place where, right? But what I, what I always found was that uh, things roll downhill, right? So if you don't have leadership at the top thinking about inclusion or thinking about uh, inclusive practice or the journey to it, right. then it doesn't matter how much you affect those practices because you'll always run into roadblocks. That's right. That's right. right? So, um, That's right. So across all of those um, experiences, you know, I just found myself in a place where I wanted to change that student experience yeah. for students to where it was a little bit different than what I experienced on campus, or they had just another resource to go to um, on campus. So, you know, throughout our careers, I think we have to figure out what drives us, what our purpose is, mm -hmm. what wakes you up in the morning, um, and try to work within that, and then try to create as much change as possible from there. Sure. No, that's, that's, that's profound. I mean, there's no question about it. And, you know, as someone himself who has been multiple times the only black body in a majority white space, whether that is just a, a meeting or uh, sort of a large gathering, or maybe in some cases, an entire department, you know, it is difficult. Uh, but we are shaped by some of those past experiences in those PWIs that have taught us, you know, as we used to talk about how, you know, 
being black becomes a life skill. And mm. that life skill is what allows us to be able to navigate places from Oneonta to, I'm guessing, maybe Quinnipiac in your situation. Um, so sticking with this theme of, of being, sh- oh, no, go ahead. Go ahead, Chairman. I was going to say not only a life skill, but a, but, but a survival skill. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Sometimes they're one and the same, but, but you know, we've, we've talked about this in the past to where, you know, that becomes a, a, a certain skill set of survival. Right. And I think about that, that notion of being the only black body in a white space um, or the meeting after the meeting. Right. <laughs> where, where if it's me and you in a room, <laughs> we're like, hey, you got two minutes. So <laughs> exactly. Time to, 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 to reconnect with somebody who, who, who shares an identity with you. And um, and you just try to recharge a little bit before you go back into that white space. So it's interesting. Yeah, that's huge, man. <clears throat> the, me- the meeting after the meeting is very real. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Sticking with the idea of being shaped, right? The, uh, we all know the Lane family is deep. You understand? It's seven kids, right? Seven, yeah. Seven kids, man. Talk to us, man, about how that experience now has shaped the, the man you are, right? The character and your outlook on life. Uh, it's interesting. You know, growing up, my mom well before the Golden State Warriors had this this trend, um, this, this notion of strength in numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so what I talk to, what, what, what I talk about in my work a lot, uh, what I talk about a lot today, you know, in my work is um, this idea of a critical mass of trying to build that within your space. And this becomes sort of that, uh, another one of those survival sort of um, practices. Sure to where not only for for students right where they they start rolling up to this critical mass and students become a part of collegiate recruitment to where you know they're engaging in um in admissions fairs and things like that to where they're trying to pull in other students of color um but for faculty and staff as well right like you try to build this 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 little bit of critical mass um, to where, to where you can feel safe and not not just physically safe. You know, a a lot of times when we talk about, um, safety it's mental as well. That's right. Right. So, 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 so this notion of, um, of being the only one, we try to do away with that. Um, but yeah, man, a lot of my work tries to, tries to, 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 to center this idea of trying to build a critical mass and I preach this to students, I preach it to faculty, I preach it to staff. Um, and I, again, a lot of that has to come from leadership. But when you talk about ownership of your experience, when you talk about if, if your experience is happening to you or if you're happening to it, um, and manifestation-wise, um, a lot of these students don't understand that they can create some of what their experience is at these PWIs. Mm-hmm. Um, for instance, you know, when I was in, at, at, at Hartwood College, we brought the first historically black uh, fraternity on oh. campus. Um, you know, Iota Phi Theta organization, uh, <laughs> you know, incorporated. Um, <laughs> no, so, 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 so we brought Iota Phi Theta on campus and um, I was one of the founding members of that line um, 20 years ago now. Um, but, you know, experiences like that you know, further let me know that we have ultimate control over what our experience is like on these campuses. Mm-hmm. And we don't have to leave it up 
to senior leadership because I didn't go to the president. I could have. Richard Detweiler at the time was his time was, was his name. I could have went to the president. I had that sort of relationship with him that 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 you know I could have. And at smaller schools, sometimes you have that um, where I could have asked him, "How do we go about this? Like, what can you do?" No, we set it up. We brought it to campus. Whether they liked it or not, it was happening. Right. right. And then you learn to work with administration and you get all the paperwork right and whatever. But it was it was rolling <laughs> before, but, uh, you know, before they came to the table. So um, a lot of what I talk about is ownership, you know, ownership of your own experience. Right. And I'm guessing, you know, knowing D Lane Squid, the, the, the Don is at the house. That's that ownership piece was hammered in sort of that uh, that own, own yourself on your moments. Yeah. Yeah, ownership of your experience, that strength in numbers. My mom sort of, uh, you know, ingrained that in us. Yeah. Um, you know, I, the women in my household are all older as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so I come from a very matriarchal household. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm talking literal. You know, there was my grandmother, my mom, my three sisters, and then the four boys. Okay. So um, respect for women was always there. Um, which made me think about, you know, how I carry myself in this world, how I, how I work within my own identity, um, the certain male privilege that I have mm-hmm. in the U.S. And, 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 and how that affects different rooms that I'm in. Um, so you walk with it every day. That's right. You, know, you walk with it every day. Um, you know, you, you don't often, I don't think a lot of people think about, well, maybe they do. A lot, I don't think a lot of people think about sort of, family values or what was ingrained in them as they're growing up. Um, Some people just move through the world as they naturally would because they can. Um, Another one of those life skills, man, it's just strength in numbers. Critical mass, strength in numbers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I do. I absolutely do. I mean, I come from a, uh, so my number is just one shy of yours. You know, I come from a a six member family of the kids. And so, you know, you talked about, you know, instilling some of that critical mass and understanding the importance of owning oneself. I mean, that's exactly what I would share my experience to be as well. You know, when it came to, you know, my grandfather used to always say, you know, if my name's on it, I'm never going 50%. You know, we don't go halfway. If my name's on it, we're going in, you know? So um, all that comes from that experience we have as kids, man, and really looking up to those, those important figures in our lives, especially in the immediate family. I want to dig in a little bit, man, uh, for our last few questions here. Um, you know, here we are again, man. You know what I mean? Uh, you and I were together at Salem, as we kind of talked about, during Michael Brown, Eric Garner, mm-hmm. you know, Sandra Bland. We were together in Tucson for Charlottesville. Mm-hmm. You know, so I know better than most sort of the impact that the taking of black lives has <clears throat> on our black students, our black staffs and our black faculty, especially, uh, especially in spaces where they are not the majority, you know? Uh, and more than that, man, I know how important that is to you and your roles and how much you take responsibility for each and individual, each person's individual feeling about it being the empath that you are for sure. Uh, how how have you responded? And I don't necessarily mean you specifically, 
but how have you and your role been able to respond to the deaths of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery? Um, and how do you think it's been received, man? So I think, um, you know, first and foremost, I think, I think we'd be remiss to, to say this hasn't been difficult, right? Um, I think every time we come, we come to these, these flashpoint moments in history to where um, you see something happen like a George Floyd um, or a Breonna Taylor, and the list goes on, right? Ahmad, while he was going out for a run. Right. Um, it becomes difficult in terms of the process on your own. Yep. Then you feel this, this, this grave responsibility, right? As a, and I don't know if you would call it survivor's remorse, right? Mm. Uh, I, my, my undergrad's in psychology, so I always go back to these, these, these psychological sure. um, explanations. Um, but you feel this grave responsibility to like either act or make sure people are okay. Um, you mentioned the empathy piece and I try to lead with empathy every day. Like that's, that's another one of my driving forces. So I feel like I feel it a little bit deeper than, than the normal Joe Schmo, but trying to operate in spaces where folks don't hold that identity in the majority, you know, folks will call a meeting the next day and they'll just go about their business. Yep. Like nothing yep. ever happened. Like yep. these images of of, of 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 black death and the black body aren't being strewn all across yes. all across uh the tube or phones yes. or computers, whatever device we open up. And that's you know, that's one thing that, that this generation has to deal with that previous generations didn't. Right? It took a while for you to hear that something happened or you had to read a paper a couple of days later or what right. have you. Right now, as soon as something is blasted across the web, it's on your feed. Yep. In thirty different places, how with however many networks Inst you have. Instantly, yep. Instant. So you know, um, I think we all deal with vicarious trauma. Um, I've tried to manage that myself with a little bit of um, of I've I've, been, I've started to meditate. Um, you know, with either Headspace or the Calm app or the Breathe app, mm -hmm. um, my phone. Um, you know, but I found myself waking up in almost panic states where heart was pounding. I couldn't really breathe. Right. And I'm not trying to be metaphorical there. Like right. I was having heart palpitations, you know, and I couldn't understand why, but this kept happening, kept happening. And, um, I, I started doing this, uh, this three, five, three breathing technique. Okay. Um, that really helped me kind of calm down, calm my mind and, and, um, and, and sort of calm my body to, to function and manage, you know, because you have all this energy that you can't do anything with. Right. So um, how I put that into the work or how I've tried to respond to that, man, I, I've, I've tried to create healing space sure. for folks, right? What, um, so every Friday at five o'clock, what, what started as, you know, this, um, this check-in for me to check in with black males um, or, or males of color on, on, on Quinnipiac's campus um, actually turned into a therapeutic space, right? It, it started as a check-in to check in about COVID. Yep. Hey, you know, we just shut down in March, uh, right, right around the middle of March, everybody had to go home, couldn't come back from spring break. Um, just want to know how you cats are doing. Um, and then, at the end of that first call, right, um, 
I mean, obviously we had talked about Ahmad at the, during that first call. And I don't think George Floyd had happened yet. Um, I asked, hey, do you guys want to do this bi-weekly? Like, you guys want to have another check-in in a month? Like, let me know. And they're like, we're home. You know, we, we, it's just us and our schoolwork. We're not doing anything. Everybody's yeah. in quarantine. How about weekly? <laughs> so I was it. like, okay, uh, all right, let's do it. <laughs> so it's been a steady stream, man, since March. Every Friday at 5, I'll get cats on the call, and I'm talking, like, current undergrads, people who have just graduated, who are no sure. longer affiliated with the school. Sure. They, they check back in just to see how folks are doing. You had some folks who had COVID, some folks who are going to protests in New York. Um, so the conversation goes all over, man. That's um, huge. That's huge, man, because, you know, <clears throat> I think about the Brotherhood days, man. And, uh, you know, we had everybody there, undergrad, grads, faculty, staff, tenured professors, didn't matter. And folks were engaged in receiving the discussion as if, you know, we all went through the same thing at the same time. And, you know, nobody mm -hmm. was pulling rank. There was no elitism. Nobody was trying to yeah. teach. No one was trying to I preach. It was just, I, don't, you know, I, don't, I don't know if you remember this, but we also had the high school students as well. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So, right. You, so you can see, uh, so, saw it from another level to where, you know, the stuff that we were doing, the, 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 the cats on campus started doing in real time. Yes. One of the most mind blowing things as well, man. But I've just tried to create space for healing, not only for myself, um, but for, for other, other folks as well. That's huge, man. That's, I actually want to jump off that a little bit, man. Um, I'm all about leaving legacies. I mean, I'm all about trying to make sure I can institute something that is going to have an impact, man, and that, you know, really affirms and solidifies my hire or, you know, my contract and my, my personhood and my commitment to the work. So why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about some of the broader initiatives um, that you've been able to create in such a, in your short time at QU, or if you have some others that are on the horizon, uh, you started talking about quilts a little bit. Um, so maybe that's one of them, but some other things that maybe you have cooking in the kitchen. Yeah. So you had talked about, um, you had talked about mentoring a little while ago. Um, and, and that's something that we take to heart. We have this uh, program again with the acronyms, excuse me. We have this program called quest Quinnipiac university enriching student transition. Um, so, um, quest mentoring program, that's an effect first year students, they're paired up with um, either juniors, uh, uh, sophomores or juniors uh, on campus. And these are all either first gen or students of color or international students, um, anyone from a marginalized background. Sure. Um, and then we have another, another layer to that where it's uh, faculty and staff. Um, mm -hmm. But what we're trying to build in, we're trying to build in this sort of alignment of experience, right? Um, with Quest specifically to where we're trying to build a cohort model of, of mentors, if you will. Um, so as they're going through their, their programming with, with their mentees, you know, we'll have uh, faculty and staff engagement with the cohort of mentors. This year we have 20 on campus. Um, so it's a, it's, it's, it's a pretty good crew, man. People enjoy it. People find, 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 find the gems where they will. Um, but this alignment, it also works with other programs. So this year we're piloting our first sort of summer bridge program right. called uh, QUFYI, first year immersion. Um, and 
QUFYI program is supposed to be a, a, a two-week residential to where folks come back um, early and they get their feet wet on campus, they're connected to resources, they're uh, jacked in with the Quest mentors uh, earlier, right? So, 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 so you go through FYI, hopefully you would come back and be a Quest mentor, um, and then you, um, you, 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 you kind of move on. We're also building in a living learning community um, which is which is uh, culturally based housing, mm-hmm. uh, and 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 that's sort of coming to fruition. This year, we're operating in a space um, in conjunction with the Global Living LLC that's on campus, um, which has some some roots in international service learning, some roots in um, with with exposing students to different cultures and different international um, students across the world. Um, we got a lot going on, man. This, this, this training piece is the largest piece right now. Um, you know, with everything that's going on with uprisings across the country, mm-hmm. I think everybody's operating off of the fierce urgency of now and everybody wants to do something right now. That's right. I think a lot of colleagues are operating off of white guilt and some of them need to back off of that. Um, but it's a double-edged sword because on the one hand you have that, on the other hand you have this energy where where people are treating my office like the consultant type of office that they should right they're reaching out before they put out um before they put out a document or they're reaching out before they uh, put on a program or they're reaching out you know before they institute a policy right now and you did some work with this in the past right now we're working on sort of a, a first amendment or um uh uh, uh, protesting policy, right? Because Quinnipiac has never had this in the past. So, you know, I brought this to our um, student conduct folks, and um, actually, our Greek life folks were were involved in that as well. Because the question kept coming up of, what do we do if and when students yep. protest? There's already talks about students doing a walkout. You know, at Syracuse, you saw students occupy a building. What yep. happened? If we do that, like how does university police respond? Right. Um, so speaking of university police, we're, 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 we're building, um, we're building a, a relationship with them as well. So where it's not like this flash in the pan, one-off training, right. but we have sort of this long-term plotted out um, experience that officers can go through where we cultivate conversations um, and different experiences for them you know, to, to, to intentionally teach them about different um, ideologies of power and privilege sure. um, right. off campus. There's a lot going on, man. Uh, you know, and, and, and right now with everything that's going on across the world, it's like every day somebody wants to do something else. Mm-hmm. Um, but at some point we're gonna, have to, we're gonna have to figure out resources and funding because my office is an office of three people. Yeah, man. I, I mean, that's some that's some legitimate work, man. And the work's not easy. And you talk about, you know, uh, providing space for young men of color and providing the space for uh, black men in particular. And it just it, it makes me think about, you know, the barbershop. And we both have had experience with with work like that. And, you know, I know you've been able to, to champion that. Um, have you have you seen the fruits of that, you know, in any way? Like, has that stuck with you since Salem State? Absolutely, absolutely. So um, at Quinnipiac, we're actually building it, uh, building the barbershop talks. It's it's called. Oh hey. <laughs> it's called the cut. What's and it called? The cut. 
called the cut. Solid. Right? So we are um, we're efficiently we're efficiently branding that. We're producing it full out with marketing as a show. Um, we have the first three pilot episodes already shot. They're cutting that up, and I'm talking about we had five cameras going. We had a camera that was panning the whole time. Wow. Um, yeah, it was it was it was a it was a crazy kind of shoot, um, and they were hyped about it when I brought the idea during my interview. But to see what it what it turned into, and you got the opening short with like the slow motion of the barber flipping the cape. I'm like, it's. <laughs> I'll actually send you some. Uh, I gotta see it early footage man um but in the next coming weeks uh i, I don't think you see me until like episode three okay because i'm doing it in conjunction with my vp of equity and inclusion okay. i want him to get in there for the first two episodes one to open us but two the second episode we, we focused on um we focused a lot on hip-hop and up. he teaches a class uh, at quinnipiac the sociology of hip-hop so i definitely wanted him in there um, and we have students um, that, that, that we talk to, and, and the barber man, cats is getting cut, cut up in the chair, and it's uh, it's fantastic, man. So it's gonna grow from here. We're we're, we're already in talks about the next shoot, um, you know. And it's just it's it's all about creating that space for students. We we, we all know that the barbershop is a staple in the black community, yep. and it's a, a piece of therapy for uh, for black men. Um, so it's it's been fantastic, man. That's going to be crazy, man. I'm, I'm super in for that, especially the direction you're taking it. You know, I remember, you know, cause that was profound at Salem, you know, and I remember I was able to do a little something at UNC that found its way to a recording, but nothing at all. Like, I don't think like what you're saying here with Quinnipiac and, oh, yeah, and this is going to be. Castle mic'd up. <laughs> <laughs> I need the director's cut, man. So, yo, thank you for being here on the chopping blog. D lane, before we let you go, man, Tell us where people can get in touch with you, man. Do you have any uh, any hashtags, any ats, any publications, any podcasts? Where can we get in touch uh, with you? No podcast yet, but that will be coming. The Lane Change Podcast. Okay. Um, <laughs> you can find me on Instagram at uh, at dlane6. I'm number six of seven in the family. That's where the six comes from. You can find me on Twitter at dlane6 as well. Um, you know, you can find me on Facebook if you can find me. <laughs> and do you have a you you still have your uh i know you offer your thoughts sometimes right a little bit of a web page yeah um that that that's on pause for now so i don't want to throw that out there but okay all right then fam hey thank you so much for being here man ladies and gentlemen my friends my family everybody out there damian lane sherrod robbins with the chopping block at visceralchange.org <laughs>